Welcome to Therapy is Cool. I'm your host, Molly Zive. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and mental health advocate. This podcast aims to normalize feelings and create a positive narrative around engaging in a healing process. This is not to substitute for therapy. If you want to find out more, please go to therapyiscoolpodcast.com. Please rate, subscribe, and share. Take care. Welcome to Therapy is Cool. I have on the show today, Michelle Griffiths. She's a social worker working as a therapist at a local intensive outpatient program. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. How many podcasts have you done so far? Um, probably about 45. <laughs> <laughs> no, zero. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I appreciate you being um, courageous and showing up today. You're welcome. I'm, I'm talking a little about... nervous. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's nothing to be nervous about. Before we hopped on the show, I told Michelle just to pretend like we were having a regular conversation. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be recorded. Yeah. So Michelle is um, someone I met in grad school at USC. You were probably like one of my first friends at USC. I think so, yeah. Yes, yeah. And I just appreciate that like through the years, we've always had each other's back and like Mm -hmm. always been able to like come back to each other and like consult and like we get it. I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's been nice to just have someone who has had similar experiences and it's crazy to see how we've developed over these last few years. I know, I'm getting chills because let's talk about that. Let's talk about your beginnings. I don't know how far back you want to go. I definitely want to hit on um, your experience at child welfare. Um, (laughs) So that was right after you graduated from grad school. Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah, I worked for the county about two and a half years. It was, I learned a lot. So it was both really, really good experience and very, very highly stressful, which is why I ended up getting out of it. Um, I think the the biggest takeaway from CPS, CWS, however you want to call it, was just learning the system, mm-hmm. figuring out, okay, this is really what it's like. Mm-hmm. This is what it's like for families and kids to deal with this, and there has to be a, a better way. Mm-hmm. That's really what what I took away from it. But yeah, it was very stressful. A lot of pressure, not a lot of resources and, you know, tools Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) given to you to deal with all of that stress. Um, So not, I commend anyone who's been there for years and years. I don't know how people do it. I know. It is a lot. It is a lot. So in your position, tell, walk me through what that process looked like. So you would get a call Mm -hmm. And then what would happen? So um, reporter, mandated reporters, teachers, family members would call into the hotline. Mm-hmm. They would generate a report based on whether we could actually investigate the report or not. And then that report would come down to me. So um, we had different you know, levels of response. I was in the emergency response unit. So we would get immediate response. We have to go out within 24 hours, mm-hmm. which really means get out there as soon as possible. Stop what you're doing. <laughs> you can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> um, we would have like three to five days, and then um, the longest response would be a 10-day response. Mm-hmm. So we could have some time. So we basically read the report, 
try to gather some backup information. So calling the reporter, if it was appropriate, sometimes it was a family member and we don't want to tip off the family that we're going to show up. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, we just go out there and knock on the door, try to find the family, do our assessment. So we interview everyone in the house, try to interview the kids by themselves, do body checks. So we're always checking for bruises and marks. Um, constantly consulting back with our supervisors to see is this removable do we safety plan in the home or do we just leave this one alone mm -hmm. so pretty pretty fast fast pace mm -hmm. um uh, you know process going on mm -hmm. so we were constantly being called out knocking on doors by yourself by ourselves oh my god sometimes if there was um, a safety alert like you know, a family member was a gang member or there were guns in the home and the parent was deemed to be violent or aggressive, then we could bring the police with us. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't super easy. Mm -hmm. You know, you get out there, you'd have to wait a couple hours mm -hmm. maybe for police to arrive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, usually we're by ourselves. Wow. So, well, yeah. especially being in the emergency response unit, it's like a hurry up and then wait. So like you get over there and then you realize, mm -hmm. oh, maybe it's not so safe that I go in there myself. It's definitely not safe for these children. Right. And then you have to wait for police or like some sort of protective factor Yeah. in order to enter. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, <laughs> I commend you for doing that work and people who are still in it. Um, and so that kind of like brings us to the topic of like, you know, figuring out what's works for you. What do you feel like as a social worker sort of works for you? I think I'm still trying to figure that out, but I, I definitely have learned that my, the environment that I work in, meaning management and, you know, the little system that I'm working within and my team, I want to have similar goals and similar values. Mm -hmm. So when my goals, which is really just the well-being of the family, the kids, trying to get them access to resources so that they can get safe and get better, when that doesn't align with the bigger picture of the organization, mm -hmm. I have a really hard time with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, that's one thing I'm figuring out is, you know, everywhere I go is going to be a business of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I have to try to align my values as a social worker and as someone who wants to just serve people with that other goal of we have to still make money and generate income mm -hmm. um, to keep this going. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of my biggest, biggest issues is like the mismatch there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I wonder how much like, we were prepared, I use myself too, like going into this field of wanting to serve people mm -hmm. and be, you know, altruistic and helping people who are vulnerable and mm -hmm. advocating for them. What was, what was your perception going into grad school versus what it is now? <laughs> um, yeah, I think going into grad school, I was really optimistic, very <laughs> hopeful and excited. Idealistic. I, idealistic. I definitely was idealistic. Yeah. And I think they did a really good job of pumping us up so we could get out there and try to do the work. I think we, what was missing was this overall goal. Like, what's the main goal of these organizations? Mm -hmm. 
of the county, of the government entities. Mm -hmm. We have to keep that in mind because it's not like we can just cut out of every job. We have mm -hmm. to figure out how to work within mm -hmm. the system so that we can actually change it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I don't think I was prepared for that part of it. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. figured, you know, if you're running an organization like that, you want the best for these people too. I don't, I just don't know if that's always true. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, I, I definitely hear you in that. And I wish yeah. that like, again, I don't, some of our professors probably did um, tell us, and I remember self-care was like definitely preached, but like it, I don't know if it fell on deaf ears, but like, I felt like no one really talked about that stuff. No one was like, guess what? You're going into a business and there's going to be things that you don't agree with. Yeah. And it's going to go against your sensitive heart. <laughs> and yes. That's yeah. what I would tell like up and coming social workers, like just be aware of. Right the reality of it. And I think that's why it's really good that we do internships, mm -hmm. you know, I agree. out the bat. Like I wanted to work with children in my first year internship and I was placed in the prison system. And then that gave me really good insight into mm -hmm. that system in our country, you know, and then I worked in the healthcare system and that gave me, right. that is also a business and insurance companies yes. are a business. And so being really aware of that and like, there's, there's just like those little compromises that we have to go through on a daily basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know you, you've had the same, um, like internal conflict there with whatever your entity you're working for and what really aligns for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like, what are you willing yeah. to tolerate at yeah. the end of the day? I mean, one thing I admire about you, Molly, is you've actually just created your own path so that you can actually do the work that really works for you and aligns with you Aww. versus staying in somewhere that's really just a mismatch. Yeah. Well, know? thank you for saying that. I, cause you've seen my struggle over the years. Like it, it's been really hard to hold on to jobs. So when you said you're at the County for two and a half years, you're at the hospital for another two years, like you're someone who's very, that sounds like a long time to me where I know that <laughs> I, my first job out of grad school, I took it because it was my first job and I was there for six months and I had a hard time like reconciling that, but mm. I couldn't keep going. I just remember the amount of ginger um, essential oil I would put on my stomach because I'd be so yes. upset. I was like so freaked out working there. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the systems, like what it came down to me is like, I, I didn't want to be around I couldn't see oppression anymore. And of course there's oppression in everyday life, but like when the actual system was oppressing the clients, that's when I was like, I need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. Well, and if you're feeding into that oppression because you're just part of the job, right. That feels horrible. Yeah. I'm just like this emotional sponge that like couldn't separate myself from it. Like yeah. I took it very personally and I started to feel oppressed, even though I would go home at night, I would still think about my clients in the prison system who had to spend the holidays right. in prison. And you know, most of them were fathers and like it, that shit just doesn't sit well with me. And it, oh, I know yeah. that there's I get it. some people who can handle it. And I think that that's another thing that I want to talk to you about today is like, that constant comparison in our field where, you know, we get into these really difficult, challenging jobs and agencies. And I'm like, well, if they can be here for seven years. Like, mm. why can't I be here? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. I, this has been actually since COVID started, one of my biggest difficulties. I've, 
I've had a really hard time with that just because this has been a really hard time for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we've been thrown onto this level playing field and watching other people, especially on my same team, being able to handle it differently mm -hmm. than I have, I do start to compare myself. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at how we're treating our own patients and our own clients, we tell them that that's the fastest way to depression, right? Mm -hmm. Like you compare yourself to someone else, you're going to feel bad mm -hmm. because there is no comparison. You're all individual. Mm -hmm. So I think we really have to keep in mind that we are not separate from our patients and our clients. We have to do the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel you. I've done the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm still struggling with it. Yeah. Um, but everybody has been on a different walk in their lives. Everybody has been able to get through different things. Mm -hmm. Whatever you've been able to deal with, someone else wouldn't have been able to handle it. You That's a good I mean? way to put it. Yeah, I love the way that you're putting it. We are kind of like all on our individual path and journey. Yeah. And so I think it is easy to kind of get caught up in the comparison, especially if you're holding the same positions. Like an agency work is like, well, so-and-so can do the work and she's not having a meltdown like I am and she's right. not losing sleep. Like why, why is something wrong with me? Yeah, totally. Well, and it's, I think it's also, it's not that they're handling it better. They're just doing it differently. Mm -hmm. So if you're not willing to tolerate an oppressed system or an oppressive system, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you're worse off than the person who's willing to stay there for seven years. Mm -hmm. it's almost like your values are different and you're just going with whatever you believe is right and good. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's bad or worse than someone who's just willing to sit there and, and take it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not to put the other person down mm -hmm. either, but it's mm -hmm. so different. I don't think we can compare. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting a therapy session right now. I'm like already calmer just talking to you. Like <laughs> That's a really good reframe. And you know, I think that, and this is not, Again, it's like so hard not to compare, but those people that do stay in agency work for a long time that I worked in often developed stress-related health problems, Absolutely. heart attacks, diabetes, like obesity. There yeah. was just an unhappiness. Like there's just yeah. like this overall stressed out feeling. So totally. really honoring that is so important in our work. And I want to hear more about like the idea of like we're not different than our clients. Like I want you to talk mm -hmm. more about that. Yeah. So this is something I've really been reflecting on since COVID. Yeah. Um, I think this pandemic has really thrown us all into a tailspin. I, I realized I stopped using skills. Mm -hmm. I stopped taking care of myself mm -hmm. and I was just holding a lot of resentment for like the systems that we work within the, um, like management and the way they were asking us to operate mm -hmm. the patients themselves for not giving me a break, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and what I'm seeing is I think we tend to think that we are different from the person that we're treating. Mm. We're somehow above or better or, you know, better equipped mm -hmm. than they are. And I don't think that's true necessarily. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. So if we don't use whatever we're guiding them to use, mm -hmm. what's the point? Mm -hmm. How is that mm -hmm. helpful? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I think it, it's so much more meaningful when you're able to use the same skills and you 
follow whatever it is that you are preaching mm -hmm. um, because it, it makes it so that you truly believe in whatever that you're teaching. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think it's the words are kind of empty. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I've just seen some of my, my peers or, you know, friends that I know talk differently about clients almost in a really negative or um, condescending way. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure we're all like realizing we're not, we're not separate. Hell yeah. We're the same. Hell yeah. <laughs> and, and hell yeah. I mean, yeah. I could think of like 15 examples and it like, even as soon as last week where my client was like, um, just going through something very similar that I felt like I was going through yeah. and like here I am teaching because like, Oh, I kind of like went through that and we're not that different. Like, you know, clients are like, how do you know so much? I'm like, I fucking did that last week. Right. Like, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I was super impulsive and I hung up on something, you know, yes. like I, I totally get it. And so I think that's really good and having that awareness. Um, what I heard you say too is teaching in your role right mm -hmm. now, you're more of a teacher. So I think that's really fascinating. And I really like that aspect of your work because I can see you being a really good teacher. Thank you. Yeah. So tell me about what it, what it is, what you're teaching, what it, you know, yeah. what you're trying to get across. So, um, I run group therapy. I know you've been in an IOP intensive outpatient program before too. As a therapist, not as a client, not that there's anything right. wrong with <laughs> clients are fine too. <laughs> but every day, at least an hour, um, more recently because of staffing, I teach two hours a day mm -hmm. and then run about two hours of group. So, um, we're teaching all kinds of different modules. Usually we're focusing on skills that can help you get through difficult times. Mm -hmm. And then we're teaching about very basic human experiences, grief and loss, mm -hmm. anger, mm -hmm. um, anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, what is depression, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I think we break it down really um, in the most simple terms as possible because the people who come to us are really depressed. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to process and take in information, but it's also information that I take home. <laughs> right. So you do the psychoeducation. Psychoeducation for an hour. Yeah. Then we go into two hours of processing in okay. the group setting. And then, but you also do skill building. So wait, psychoeducation is separate from skill building or are they all the same? They're, they're the same. Oh. Yeah. So, well, it depends on what I'm teaching that yeah. day. So um, we'll use the skill in the group mm -hmm. and we'll practice it in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I technically think of that as skill building. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you experiential teaching. It's experiential therapy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you do a lot of CBT. Like when I think of you, even when you're talking to me about my like insecurities, I'm like, She's using CPT on me and it worked <laughs> not. I don't think about it in the moment, but afterwards I'll go home and be so reflective. I'm like, what did she say? That was so like pertinent. And I'm like, she's using CBT on me. Oh, I see this girl. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> I don't mean to. No, no, no. It's, it's a compliment. It's like, you're using, I, you're, you are so well-rounded and you're such a great clinician. Like why not share it with your friends? Like Thank I'm not you. saying you're giving me free therapy, but you definitely like implement these interventions that, makes sense and cbt is a evidence-based intervention so it's like yeah. it works and so right <laughs> it's one of the strongest for depression mm -hmm. that we see with with research mm -hmm. and i think that happens you know 
outside of my work mm -hmm. because I really believe in the therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so I use it for myself. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a lot easier to just like implement into my life. Right. And then it ends up just coming out. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us, I keep using CBT, I don't know if I said it, cognitive behavioral therapy, but yeah. can you give me like an overview of what that is? Yeah. So cognitive behavioral therapy focuses on the connection between the way that we interpret events, how we start feeling, and then what we do with that, our behaviors. So usually when we are introducing a new patient to the therapy, we use the cognitive model. I don't know if you've seen that before, mm -hmm. but it's circular. It starts with the situation, mm -hmm. which is usually something out of our control, mm -hmm. loss, uh, getting a horrible car accident, job loss, you know, the pandemic. And then it's not really about that thing that happened. Mm -hmm. The problem comes with the way that we interpret that event. So we are all interpreting differently because mm -hmm. we're unique. We've been through different experiences. Mm -hmm. Those thoughts are typically the first place we can start to intervene. Mm -hmm. So we can look at the thoughts check out if they're illogical or extreme mm -hmm. because that influences how we feel. So for example, if I have a thought like, um, I'm a bad person, I'm not going to feel happy afterwards. <laughs> I'm going to feel yeah. really bad. I'm going to feel sad, guilty, depressed. Mm -hmm. um, our emotions prompt us to act. Mm -hmm. So we can't really change our emotions. That's what we believe in the therapy. But what we do with the emotions afterwards, mm -hmm. that's something that we can start to intervene as well. Mm -hmm. So CBT is focusing on changing the thoughts, challenging them, checking out if they're true, and then changing the behaviors, mm -hmm. doing something differently mm -hmm. to reinforce new thoughts mm -hmm. rather than continuing to reinforce these really bad thoughts mm -hmm. that make us feel bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, really well said. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're so smart. Um, I think that, you know, when I do therapy, I'm not as structured as you in the IOP, but mm -hmm. I find that using cognitive distortions and giving people those, that visual of, Hey, you may be discounting the positives or, Hey, you're catastrophizing yeah. right now. Or it's like, do you think, you know, the mind reading is a big, all of them are so pertinent. I think we all carry those cognitive distortions mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right. Like how we developed those or we're conditioned to have those is all different. Mm -hmm. But like at the end of the day, we all have these distortions going on that aren't necessarily right. true. Every single person, every single person. Yeah. It doesn't matter how enlightened you are. You have distorted thoughts mm -hmm. at times. Of course. Yeah. And I yeah. think that it's really important, like you said, too, is just like honoring the feelings and acknowledging the feelings. That's what I do a lot in my therapy is just like being able to step into your authentic self of like accepting your feelings, you know, yeah. if you're constantly not pushing them away and not allowing them to come up, you're only perpetuating the depression or the anxiety exactly. or the whatever is going on in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that you say that because we do a lot of just normalizing emotions. We really want to feel the good ones, mm -hmm. the joy, peace, calm, happiness. The other ones are really important too, though. Yeah. So we try to push them away. We think anger is bad. Mm -hmm. Feeling sad is really bad. Mm -hmm. Guilt is horrible. They all give us information. So mm -hmm. if we use them in a way to you know, understand what's happening for us, I think they can be really helpful mm -hmm. instead of 
detrimental to us. Totally. And that's where the teaching comes in. And that's right. where, you know, you're, and I think the group process is, I love group. You, I know we've talked about this. We both yeah. love group. I think it's really helpful too, to kind of, it's even more normalizing. It's one thing when a therapist says it, it's like, okay, like we get it. But when your peers can say it to you too, and reflect things back to you, mm-hmm. I think that that's like, that's why I love group therapy. That's where the magic happens. Where the magic yeah, happens. Yeah. It's not about us as the clinicians. Mm-hmm. It's really about them. Mm-hmm. And they're amazing. The way that they're able to take information in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Our program is maybe eight weeks long. Mm-hmm. And what's the shortest it is? Sorry, I didn't mean. To... Um, some people are there for five to six weeks. Okay. Yeah, we don't go too long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the way they're able to implement the information, put it into practice, and start changing their own lives in such mm-hmm. a short period of time and then challenging their peers in the group is like oh. that's the best that's so rewarding it's the best. yes that that's is, what gives me chills <laughs> yeah that's so rewarding that's that's like where the work comes in you actually know yeah. they're doing their work and they're coming back and like you know because your program is is how many hours for the client three hours three hours okay and then I do outpatient therapy which is one hour a, right. a week and so it's like yes that is effective and yes we're gonna like cultivate good skills but it's like really what happens outside of the room that absolutely is where the also where the magic happens i'm like can there be this much magic in therapy (laughs) so much magic i am willing to date a magician (laughs) (laughs) why would you not i know i know that was like an snl thing but that's what comes every time i think of magic it's like so you're willing to date a magician (laughs) okay i digress um (laughs) So, so I think it's really important. Um, the work that <laughs> I'm like refocusing. Tell me magic about that you're doing. <laughs> I I love the magic. Would you consider being a magician? I think on the side, absolutely. <laughs> well, I know that um, clownmanship runs in the family. <laughs> it does. My grandmother used to clown. Her name was Jazzy. If anyone wants to look her up, Jazzy the clown. Jazzy the clown. Yes, my boyfriend calls her Senator Jazzy. Yeah, that's. <laughs> It's yeah. really important to have that sort of um, honor that entertainment value that Absolutely. you have within you, you know, a Absolutely. teacher and magician. Exactly. <laughs> We're so creative in our family. I know. So so th- that kind of pivots me to your own self-care and creativity. So you mentioned that <clears throat> things kind of looked a little different before the pandemic in terms of your self-care versus mm-hmm. like how it shifted now. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Um. Well, I think things were just easier for me before the pandemic. So I didn't have to go out of my way and intentionally build things into my day that made me feel good. They would just kind of fall into my lap. Um, I was in a really good place at work. During the pandemic, I've had some hard times at work. I think everybody has. Mm -hmm. We've been short staffed. Um, I've had some you know, doing a lot of those comparisons. Mm -hmm. So making myself, you know, feel a bit down Mm -hmm. even when I didn't need to. So now what I've realized is I have to be intentional about the way that I take care of myself. Mm -hmm. So even when I don't feel good after work, I have to keep moving. Mm -hmm. I can't come home and just lay on the couch, veg out, watch TV. But it's so easy. It's so easy. (laughs) And you think, hey, this is me resting. It's not really though. Mm-hmm. This it's vegging mm-hmm. instead of true like relaxation mm-hmm. or 
um, like going for a walk instead, just to move your body after sitting for six, seven, eight hours mm -hmm. <laughs> at work. So that's really just my, the big change is I have to be really mindful of it because I really want to go back to just vegging out on the couch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the reward. I really want to do that. Yeah. yeah. So tell but me about yesterday you did something fun for yourself and oh, your intentional. Yeah. So what does your self-care, like actual practices look like? Sure. So I make sure I'm moving my body every single day. Mm -hmm. um, so I get up really early in the morning and I'll walk the dog mm -hmm. at least 30 minutes. That's how I usually start my day. Um, I'm making sure... I'm eating in a way that makes me feel good, so not super rigid, but I'm fueled. Mm -hmm. I'm like prepared for the day so I don't get hungry. That's know? so important, like preparing for the day, and that's something that yeah. I need to work on like the yeah. night before so I'm not like scrambling to yes. like, just shove my face with something. Right, right. <laughs> um, I accomplish things all the time. That's one of my, the things that's really easy for me mm -hmm. is just to make sure I get something done. But what I really have been missing is the social piece and then doing something that is fun mm -hmm. or like makes me feel good or makes me feel happy. Mm -hmm. So I've intentionally been meeting up with more of my friends, mm -hmm. um, socially distanced, mm -hmm. right? But yesterday, what you're referring to, we went to La Jolla Shores and went uh, with my girlfriend and went uh, paddle boarding. So that was so much fun mm -hmm. and just really being there in the moment mm -hmm. and seeing all the seals come up and Aww. the fish and it was such a beautiful day out. So yeah, you even yeah. said you felt like you were on vacation and yes. you just drove 15 minutes down to the coast. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So doing more of the things that make you happy. It sounds so easy, but implementing it is so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. Because your mind and your body is going to tell you to do the other thing. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. go home and do nothing. But we know that ends up making us feel worse. It so just much. does. Yeah. So. The scrolling too, like on, it's like just like oh, the constant gosh. scrolling. Yes. Also yeah. makes you feel worse. Oh yeah. Yeah, so those things do seem really easy to do and like a fallback. Yeah. And I'll even catch myself scrolling on Instagram and I'm like, does this make me feel good? You know, I had a lot of thoughts before that if we're talking about cognitive distortions, like, mm -hmm. why are you on this? You could be more productive. Like, this is such a waste of time. Like, you're an idiot for looking at it for so long. Like, those are all the thoughts that I have. Your eyes are becoming worse and worse. <laughs> like, that is something right. I'm struggling with this week. So I have all those thoughts and then I finally get off of it and I'm, and, but I don't feel good because I'm telling myself all those things. It's not like an intentional, like yeah. it's time to be mindful. It's like, right. I had so much momentum around those thoughts of what I was doing and judging myself for what I was doing. Absolutely. Then afterwards I'm like, I, I can't even relax now Yeah. because I'm, I'm beating myself up. Yeah. And I think we all can relate to that. We all do it. And it's so easy. It's like a train just takes off and, then you're suddenly feeling shitty. Yeah. Like, wow. And you're like, why are you feeling shitty? You know, whether it's like smoking weed, drinking too much alcohol, mm -hmm. scrolling on Instagram, like you're just not attending to your like emotional needs and then judging yourself and beating yourself up for doing that thing. Exactly. It's a vicious cycle. It is a vicious cycle. So yeah. I, yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to you during this pandemic of like us having to shift, you know, of like 
oh, you mean I can't like walk down to the yoga studio and do a class? Like, right. This is not possible. And then getting pissy, like at home trying to do a class and like, well, the cat's walking through, you know, there's banging in the kitchen. Right. Exactly. Like, where's my controlled environment? And I think that, you know, a lot of us are lacking control. And it's definitely like this. We're all freaked out right now, right? Yeah. This hasn't been easy for any of us. And, you know, I think the solution is coming back to being intentional and doing those grapes, like yeah. <laughs> that we talk about. Grapes. grapes is such a great intervention. Do you want to break down what grapes I would is? love to. Okay. Yeah. Grapes is, uh, it's an acronym. It's used for behavioral activation. So when you're really depressed, it's easy to stop taking care of yourself. So easy. Your brain, your body says, don't do it. Can I, before we get into this, Yeah, I want to say that being being in my own depression, I know what mm-hmm. it's like to be depressed. Mm-hmm. And suggesting this to people sometimes feels like I'm giving them another chore. So yeah. sorry, we need to break up the acronym, but like, I also just like want to be mindful of the fact that like, I want to be considerate of someone going through depression. Mm-hmm and this not coming off as like being annoying and giving them an assignment. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I see that every day in my job as well. And sometimes it sounds invalidating. Mm -hmm. Well, if you just do these things, you can start to feel better. Mm -hmm. It's not really about just that. This really just gets you moving Mm -hmm. so that we we give the acronym like pushing a Costco card is like depression. Mm -hmm. Like when it's really full and packed, it's super heavy. Mm -hmm. So when you first start to push it, it's going to be so heavy, barely move it. Mm -hmm. But the more you gain momentum and keep gliding, it gets a lot easier. Oh my gosh. Love that analogy. (laughs) I think we can all relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that analogy. Costco card. Okay. So we, I'm, I, got you off track. Grape okay. stands for, no, you don't need to apologize. Grape stands for gentle with self. Uh-huh. So really just being <laughs> kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. That can be the way that you talk to yourself or drinking water, whatever it looks like. R is for relaxation. Mm-hmm. So not budging out on the couch, but intentionally doing activities to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, a is for accomplishment. So depression tells us you don't do anything, right? Mm-hmm. So building in little things during the day, going to the grocery store, wiping down the kitchen counter, Mm -hmm. um, starts to make us feel good. We build mastery. P is for pleasure. Another part of depression is anhedonia, which is the lack of pleasure. So building in things that we used to find pleasurable Mm -hmm. can eventually start to actually feel good again. Mm -hmm. At first they're not going to, but Mm -hmm. we gotta do it anyways. E is for exercise, so at least 30 minutes a day, we say, moving your body. Um, it's a natural antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And then social is the, the S. Mm-hmm. So depression tells you you're alone. You're the only one feeling this way. Mm-hmm. So we have to reconnect with people. Mm-hmm. Grapes. Grapes. Yeah. Grapes. I use it. I've been using it. Yay! Yeah. For yourself. For myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to forget some of those components. Yeah. And um, I like that there. I send out worksheets to my clients who are super depressed about the grapes. And just like, um, so it says like what it stands for and then the days of the week. So they know yes. like what did I do and they can write in like, okay, this is how I did accomplishment today. I love like a simple... With depression, you really do have to break it down into tiny, tiny, tiny components. Yes. So... I love the idea of just going to the grocery store mm-hmm. or and not 
and again, like it's really, it's this really fine line and balance between like being invalid. Like I don't want to invalidate anyone to be like, well, you, you can just like wipe down something you can right. just, and they're so far dug into their depression and their beliefs that they yes. can't do it. That, Absolutely. How do you, how do you deal with that type of resistance? Well, so we get a lot of people who believe that, um, wiping down the counter isn't going to make me feel any better. Right? Oh, I love that challenging. Thought. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're right. Just doing that is not going to make you feel any better. But the goal is to not feel like you are right now. Mm-hmm. So the more that you don't do these things, the worse you're going to feel. You're going to stay stuck. Mm-hmm. So grapes is really just a building, like building blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, if going to the grocery store is too hard right now, we don't want you to do that. Mm-hmm. Break it down even smaller. Maybe it just means walking outside your front door mm-hmm. and standing in the sun for five minutes. Mm-hmm. So meeting people where they're at and acknowledging that this isn't going to be a magic pill, mm-hmm. but this is the stuff that you have to keep doing for the rest of your life in order to prevent another depression mm-hmm. and to start lifting the depression. Mm-hmm. This is what research shows. Mm-hmm. Each of the letters target different symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. So they're completely acting opposite of those symptoms. Mm-hmm. That's really what why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just telling you to do things for the sake of doing them. It's specifically targeting symptoms of depression. Wow. Yeah. I never knew that. I never knew it was like, but it makes sense now that I'm putting it all together, but I was mm-hmm. never explained like that. So I never yeah. knew that they were like all associated with symptoms of depression. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating actually when you go through it. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. That targets <laughs> anhedonia. That targets negative self-belief. That exactly. tar- Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. makes complete sense. And I think that when it comes down to it, like I'm all of those things really do work, but I would say that I'm the most um, compelled to really um, help my clients be problem solvers and finding connection again. Because yes. what does depression tell us? That we're alone. We're alone. We're isolated. Yeah. And I think you posted something on your Instagram the other day about suicide and like those. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the Venn diagram said or like? Um. So. Uh, it, it went a little bit off, but we talk about the negative triad, mm-hmm. which is the types of beliefs mm-hmm. that we have when we're depressed. One is I'm worthless. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's nothing good about me. Mm-hmm. The other is that um, like my future is hopeless. Mm-hmm. And the other is um, that I'm helpless, that nobody gets it and mm-hmm. nobody can relate to me. No one can help me. So combined, we really like when we have all of those components, what's the point? Right? Yeah. That's really where we get down in that deep, dark hole. Right. And become suicidal. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. so relatable. I think all of us have um, identified with one or more, Absolutely. all of them, <laughs> at some point in our life where we're like, what's the point of if we keep going? You know, like, yes. why am I even existing? Right. And that's right. when we have to safety plan, right? Exactly. So I think it's good to talk about suicide for, you know, as much time as we need to on this podcast today, but you deal with a lot of um, suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and a lot of planning and intenting and intention around it. Like it's not just, yeah. And attempts. Yeah. I mean, some of your clients come and when you work in an IOP, those of you who aren't familiar with it. So um, a lot of times, at least you can, at least the ones that I've worked in, it's like you're hospitalized for having, you're put on a hold 
most times, which is a 5150, you're a danger to yourself mm -hmm. or someone else, but we'll talk about suicide. So if you're a danger to yourself and you have an active means and intent, yeah, or you have attempted and you come in and you're stitched up in the ER and then you're placed on the psych unit for, yeah. um, you know, the attempt that you you took your almost took your life right and and then you are you know once you're stabilized once you're put on medication stabilize I'm gonna use that in quotes once the psychiatrist yes. uh, puts medication in you then you do a step-down program which is sometimes partial hospitalization mm -hmm. and then intensive outpatient programs so right. the people that you treat are very 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 sick they're These, very sick they're very smart capable used to be very high functioning mm -hmm. human beings. Mm -hmm. So they're scary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes they're really scary to treat because they don't always tell you. They know how to hide it. Totally. Yeah. I remember when we, you know, were first, I was a baby social worker <laughs> and we were safety planning with each client that was coming into my clinic. Um, they were saying, you know, white males up, and I can't like above the age of 45 or 50 mm -hmm. are the most likely to commit. They're the most lethal, so really, like, and high-functioning ones, especially, because yeah. you never see those symptoms of depression. They hide say it. never, say never, but, like, you know, they hide it so well. And like you're saying, right. so smart, so capable, so high-functioning, know how to access things, right. know what they need to do in order to make that happen. So, yeah. you know, if their intention is to have to take their own life, like, that's a very strong momentum towards that goal absolutely and what's scary is if someone has made that decision as a clinician and someone who cares about that person you don't have control whether mm -hmm. whether they're going to go through with it or not mm -hmm. it doesn't mean we don't still step in to intervene mm -hmm. but um i think that's part of the scary part is we can do everything we can and it can still end up with that result mm -hmm. and that's you know, as a therapist and social worker, that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. That's like the worst case scenario. The worst thing that can happen. Yeah. The worst, like yeah. as a clinician. Yeah. Is yeah. knowing someone and then taking their own life. Yeah. In my opinion. Hard not to take responsibility to, yeah. you know, feel guilty or, I mean, Is there I something I could have done? Is there something that I should have said? Did I not say enough? Exactly. You have all these things going through your head. Yeah. 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 I've experienced, um, several suicide at, at the IOP level. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, it's, it's always surprising, I think, you know, and it's like as much as we want to look for the signs and the symptoms. And of course they're in treatment. So you think, oh, they're getting better, but if they're not being, mon you know, if clients aren't being monitored 24 seven and they have a heroin addiction or, you know, right. they start snorting fentanyl, it's like, it's easy an overdose and it's easy for things to happen absolutely so yeah. um you know what do you tell someone who comes in like what are some tips or you know some things that we can do to kind of help spread awareness about people who are suicidal um well there are some signs not always mm -hmm. um some of the obvious ones are like if someone's feeling really bad they're really depressed and then some, suddenly they have a flight to wellness. Mm -hmm. That's usually a really scary sign. Mm -hmm. If you're really depressed, you don't suddenly get better, mm -hmm. right? Like it takes some work to get out of that depression. Um, so if you see someone that you care about who was really depressed and suddenly everything's all good, 
they may have figured out that solution in their head. It almost makes them feel good. Mm. Um, it's like safe, you know, okay, I know how I'm going to work out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, giving away belongings, mm-hmm. really scary. Taking out life insurance. I remember yes. that was a case that I worked on where a man took yeah. out his life insurance and it was really scary. Yes, yes. Um, the the pretty severe guilt and shame mm-hmm. when someone comes in with that, that tells me that they are really beating down on themselves. They think everything is their fault. Um, if they perceive that they're just a burden to their family, mm-hmm. that's pretty big concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they want to relieve that burden, mm-hmm. burdenness. I don't know how to say that. Burdensomeness. Burdensomeness. It sounded right. <laughs> right. Um, and then another big one is the the disconnection. Mm-hmm. Just when someone is completely isolated, mm-hmm. especially the longer that this goes on, mm-hmm. when they don't have that that support system mm-hmm. or like feelers out in their community, that gets really scary too. Because mm-hmm. they really get up all in their head. Right? Absolutely. There's so much self-absorption going on that their thoughts start to become really, really strong and believable. Mm-hmm. And they think this is the only way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's so easy to isolate during this pandemic. I yes. mean, I have a ton of clients who are just like easily able to avoid people. And even when friends and family mm-hmm. reach out to them, like, I miss you, I want to see you, they're right. still able to like, you know, pit it off to like COVID, which that's a very real thing too. But like, of course. Pick up the phone and call your friends, y'all. Text your friends and really yes. ask how they're doing. Don't just say, how are you? Fine. How, no, really, how are you right now? Because we're all struggling. Right. If you're in a place to actually check in on people. Again, like, Absolutely. never want to put someone in a position who's feeling shitty, too, and then, like, having to care for someone else and being scared, you know? But that you can also reach out for your own sake. Right. You know? How good does it feel to reach out even when you are feeling healthy? Like, Win, win, right. win. And win, win, win. <laughs> so, when, so if someone's listening to this podcast and they're wondering, um, you know, they see these signs and they're very concerned, what are, mm-hmm. what are the next steps? Well, um, it kind of depends. You can talk to this person, let them know, hey, I'm, I'm kind of worried about you. Mm-hmm. Is something going on? I'm just noticing some, some things or some changes. Um, hopefully they're willing to open up to you. Mm-hmm. Let them know that you're there, right? If you're willing to be there and you're capable of being there. Um, You can always reach out to Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the number offhand. That's okay. We'll put it in the episode notes. The Suicide Prevention Hotline. I think you can text now too. So I don't know if the texting is live. um, But they did just like pass it. I know that. Yeah. I just don't know that it's gone off live. Yeah. They're also changing it so that there's a direct number, kind of like a 911 uh-huh. for, for suicide. Uh-huh. Um, instead, oh, instead of that calling. long 800 oh. or whatever number it is. Yeah, yeah. Let me yeah. look it up right now. You okay. Can, yeah. Yeah. So the suicide prevention hotline. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little wary of giving this one out, but... The PERT team, Psychiatric Emergency Response Team, is part. They work in conjunction. You know about this, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in conjunction with the police. I almost worked as a clinician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can call 911 and request a PERT team if you're worried about mm-hmm. someone's welfare. Mm-hmm. So the, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. one 800 273 
Beautiful. So I think it's also really important to talk about, and I see this a lot in the last few weeks, about my clients are concerned for someone else being suicidal mm -hmm. and the fear around just addressing it, right? Like mm. they're so concerned and they are in their own fear and they, it's, again, it's like, and not all cases the same, but it's like this fine line of like, how much am, am I capable of taking on from this other person right now? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I hear a lot, like, I don't want to perpetuate it. Like, I don't want it to get worse if I start asking about it. What can you say to someone who's thinking those type of thoughts and fears? Well, I think the first thing is just asking, hey, are you doing okay? I'm worried about you, mm -hmm. is not going to make someone more suicidal. Mm -hmm. If anything, it lessens it because you're being seen, mm -hmm. right? Oh, someone's noticing how hurt I am. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is knowing where your responsibility lies. Just mm. asking and checking in does not make you responsible for their life. Mm. So if you notice something concerning, even if you're off, right, you can always call and just um, like call this lifeline and mm -hmm. let them know. I, I don't know what the deal is, but something's telling me something's not okay here. Mm -hmm. And then you can step away. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you always have to like go in and rescue this person. Mm -hmm. That's, I don't think that's what we're asking for. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're worried, check in, mm -hmm. let them know that you see them. Mm -hmm. that there's a connection there. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are worried or you see something concerning, you can always tell them or tell someone that they, you know, they live with, um, their parent. Mm -hmm. So the responsibility is not all on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, yes, I think that's a really great thing to factor in is like your sense of responsibility and, you know, something that I struggle with in my personal and professional life is like, being so sensitive and being such an empath and like understanding where my feelings end and where they begin to someone yeah. else's and just like, you know, taking on their fear and taking on like the scary thought of, I actually want to not be here, you right. know, and I, and I am feeling these thoughts and they're very real. So right. working with clients, you know, it, it's really hard for me sometimes to like not take that responsibility or not like, directly feel it within my body like right how helpless and hopeless that feeling must be absolutely i think we all struggle with that yeah. i think one of the i don't know how much time we have but we're good one of the issues i've had with all of the the normalization of reaching out for help with suicide like that campaign going on mm -hmm. is i think we are putting too much responsibility on others mm. to save someone who is suicidal like they're not taking sense. enough personal responsibility right and there's only so much you can do right so you can know the signs and um, you can reach out but you are not responsible at the end of the day for them killing themselves right or the outcome mm -hmm. whether or not they get the help outcome. right that personal right. responsibility is so important and yeah I, again in our work again like you know we have to put it back on our clients to do their own work and take that personal accountability like hey do you want your symptoms to alleviate like it'd be really cool like for me if, if you know you were less depressed but right. like, how are you feeling about it like right do you really want to change are you stuck enough are you feeling so empty and so worthless and so helpless inside that it's motivating you to feel anything different right like because a lot of that stuckness is like as soon as you get uncomfortable enough you can start moving 
right? Yeah. You can really you can use it as a motivation to be like, I'm done feeling this way. This I'm is done. not the person I am. This isn't this is like a facade. This is a shell of myself. Right. And the only way to do that is move through it. Like I see a lot of people try to go around it and yeah. be like, once I'm on the other side, then I can start hanging out with my friends and family. Yeah. I can really start enjoying life. I'm like, okay. And that's where the grapes comes in. It's yeah. like you have to move through it. You have to accept the way that you feel and have like that support system and have things in place right. for you to move through it. You can't go around it. Absolutely. And I love what you just brought up that once this thing happens, then I'll take some action. Mm -hmm. We see that so mm -hmm. often. And the reality is once that thing comes, then what? Right. Like, are you really going to change then? Mm -hmm. Doubtful. Right. <laughs> once you get that job, once yeah. you like have that significant other, yeah. you're going to be stopping you from doing it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the motivation, everyone's rock bottom looks so different too. Like, oh, yeah. especially working in child welfare, you're like, I would never do this. You know, like, this is something I would never do. This would be my rock bottom, having my kids taken away. I'd really right. want to work on myself. And you know that those families, I've, I've worked within like an intersect of child welfare. Yeah. They, having your kids taken away isn't in living with someone else, living in a foster that's not always people's rock bottom. Everyone's rock bottom looks completely different. Absolutely. And Absolutely. being very aware of that. Um, so yeah, I don't know that that, that was a tangent. So <laughs> I want to <laughs> ask you, Michelle, why you think therapy is cool? I think therapy is cool because it saves lives. Boom. Pretty simple. <laughs> Period. <laughs> well, I'm really, honored and so grateful that you were able to be here today Me and I too. know that the work that you do you are saving lives big time as are you <laughs> thank you but I, I thank you and um, you know I think that with the saving lives it's really important the safety aspect and I know that you are also change, helping people change their lives through their thoughts through their feelings and giving them a little bit of hope and so thank you thank you thank I you for having me yeah <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I think it's really important that we spend time for ourselves and I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, maybe relax and listen to a podcast and engage in self-care. If you want to find out more, please go to therapyiscoolpodcast.com or you can find me on Instagram at Molly Zive Therapy. All right, everyone, take care.